Hello, my name is Laura Deirda and I'm an Editor-in-Chief with Becker's Healthcare. For the next 40 minutes, I'll be your moderator alongside a great panel of experts for our session titled, How Technology Impacts the Patient Experience, Satisfaction and Quality Care. In this session, we will discuss the big trends in digital technology and patient experience, as well as um, how health systems are handling the coronavirus pandemic across the nation. There's already been significant innovation in this space prior to the pandemic, and COVID-19 has accelerated many of the trends for technology in healthcare. So before we um, move any further into the questions that we have prepared, I want to let the panelists introduce themselves. John, if you could go first. Hello, Laura and, and colleagues and everybody. I'm Dr. John Perlin, the Chief Medical Officer and President of Clinical Services at Nashville, Tennessee-based HCA Healthcare. Uh, and uh, privileged to be here with uh, colleagues who are not only fighting COVID, but uh, using, as Laura said, this as an opportunity to accelerate innovation and improve healthcare. Um, Alpa, if you could introduce yourself briefly. Great. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Alpa Vias. I'm Vice President for Patient Experience at Stanford Healthcare. And I do want to thank everyone, uh, my colleagues that are on this panel, and for those that are uh, participating uh, virtually, I look forward to today's uh, discussion. Matt, could you introduce yourself? Sure. Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Matt Grobe. Uh, it's great to be here. I'm Senior Director for IT Governance at Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. There are eight hospitals in the Icon School of Medicine. And uh, relative to today's discussion, um, I started our digital health group about seven years ago and still play an advisory role in that. And also one of the executive sponsors for IT's support for the health system's COVID-19 response. And Adam, we'd love to hear from you as well. Oh, you're on mute, Adam. Uh, there we go. Uh, I'm Dr. Adam Myers. I have the privilege of serving as the Chief of Population Health and the Director of Cleveland Clinic Community Care, which is our Population Health Management Unit. Uh, we, uh, the unit encompasses all the pediatrics uh, from a primary care perspective, internal medicine, family medicine, geriatrics, and the ambulatory space, the hospitalist space, the post-acute space, as well as care at home. I call it twinkle to wrinkle care from uh, across all sites of care. Um, I joined the clinic years ago in this, uh, as the inaugural leader of this position. Outside of the clinic, I'm the immediate past chair of the Committee for Clinical Leadership of the American Hospital Association. And I now also serve as a commissioner on the board of the Joint Commission. Thank you all for joining us again today. The first question I have, I would like to hear from all of our panelists. And we'll start with John. The first question is, over the past few years, technology has changed the way patients interact with the healthcare system. And the coronavirus has accelerated many of these trends. How do you think patient um, expectations about their healthcare experience will change after the pandemic? Well, thanks, Laura. I'm sure this is something that you as an uh, individual in the community and all of our colleagues in healthcare are, are, are thinking about because um, uh, there are, will be durable structural changes to delivery of healthcare and the expectations for how health services uh, are delivered. Uh, I think uh, everyone is aware of the ascension of telemedicine as um, one example. While I may well have expected my college-age kids to 
you know, gravitate immediately to um, device-based uh, interaction. Um, I wasn't really anticipating that my parents would really warm to it as they have. Clearly, COVID's been uh, an accelerator. And I think it's going to be really tough to put the genie back in the bottle on a number of levels. First, that introduces a new level of convenience that um, uh, meets needs, that introduces a new way of, um, uh, of really um, adapting care to the patient's timeline and uh, expectation. It introduces a mechanism to distribute workload across different providers and provide the best uh, uh, experience. Uh, and it's introduced a number of policy changes that um, even allow um, uh, privileging across state lines, something that's been very challenging before. So in all of those regards, um, consumer-facing telehealth is there. On the hospital uh, side as well, um, the ability to bring deep expertise to the patient uh, is something that's really been accelerated so that a specialist in a particular area, a critical care intensivist, uh, whether she's across the country, can really consult at that very moment that consultation is needed uh, in the context of, um, uh, of the data. Uh, which leads me to my final point, is that uh, in the past, we've tended to think of um, telehealth uh, as something separate. But uh, I've made a prediction, which seems to be borne out, is that we'll see more of a convergence with the electronic health record and the ability to have the patient, the health information, and the facilitating technology, I think changes the equation uh, durably. And um, I'll look forward to my uh, colleagues' uh, thoughts on uh, this evolution as well. That's great insight. Thanks, John. And I'd love to hear from you too, Adam, from Cleveland Clinic's perspective. How are you preparing for new patient expectations um, in terms of healthcare delivery? Thanks so much. You know, it's, uh, I, I agree with, uh, with John and his remarks completely. It's initially, there was uh, some hesitance on, the, on behalf of many to participate in, in healthcare through technology, but that, those barriers have been broken down by necessity. Some of those barriers have been, um, misgivings rather, have been on the side of providers and clinicians who didn't necessarily feel particularly comfortable with the modalities or or, uh, or they felt uh, beholden to face-to-face -face encounters. A lot of that has now gone by the wayside as well. Many people and patients have gotten past their discomfort and, and found that the convenience is, uh, is very real and necessary as well as they've become much more comfortable with it. I do have a bit of concern though about aspects of it in that many of our most vulnerable communities have historically had limited access to healthcare. I think the progressive dependence on technology stands the risk of actually worsening that rather than helping with that as many communities have very limited access to broadband and or uh, even to you know smartphones, et cetera. So it's gonna be very important for us as we look forward to be sure to not leave people out of this transition toward uh, technology as being such an embedded part of how we do healthcare. Great, and Matt, do you have anything to add? Yeah, uh, you know, all great points, and and we as well saw our um, telehealth visit volume jump by an order of magnitude, uh, from an average of twenty visits a day in February to over four thousand a day by the end of April. Um, and I think that that has met certain expectations and needs, but I think that patients are going to continue to expect more. Um, you know, there's only so much you can accomplish during a virtual visit, and they're going to want to know, well, why don't we have the tools available to prevent me from having to come in for an in-person visit? Why isn't there 
even more in our digital toolbox that we can leverage. Um, and I think that also we need to help set expectations not only around that, but people are going to want to use the tools that are familiar to them. They're going to want to use FaceTime or Zoom. And we have to set expectations in terms of both HIPAA compliance and how many different platforms that we can support realistically. Fantastic. And Alpa, what are your thoughts on the patient experience side of things? Sure. I think, you know, part of my role is to really help bring the voice of the patient and the family uh, forward in um, not only our day-to-day -day kind of pre-COVID world, but certainly um, as we're kind of living um, through this experience right now. Um, to, I absolutely agree with what all of my colleagues have said. And just to add a little bit, I think this um, combination of both technology and um, kind of uh, in-person uh, uh, interactions are really going to be the key. So it's more of an omni-channel um, approach that we're going to have to take. And I think the um, uh, the pandemic, as well as the technology that has evolved or scaled um, because of it, is not only changing the interactions in the digital world, it's actually having a pretty big imprint on our physical facilities as well. Those are changing um, and how technology will integrate into helping keep uh, patients safe, even when they need to come uh, into our physical um, environments, um, will also uh, be, I think, a key theme that we'll all be uh, watching. That's fascinating. Alpa, um, could you, do you have any examples of some of the projects that you've done on the digital side of things that have made an impact on the hospital, either already or something that you're considering or in the process of implementing um, that is really making a big difference? Sure, I can uh, speak to two examples. One that's already been implemented. Uh, we just recently opened up our uh, new addition uh, to our campus, um, our the new hospital building, which is uh, fairly uh, technology advanced, both from a, um, a care team workflow um, efficiency perspective, as well as from a patient family perspective. One of the things that um, we uh, developed was some of the in-room technology uh, to help keep things at the fingertips of our patients whether it be uh, room uh, controls for temperature, lighting, et cetera, or access to content uh, through iPads or a interactive patient system uh, that was de designed, as well as a customized app, um, which I can talk about uh, later. Um, but one of the things that um, we also uh, really uh, thought about was in the moment of COVID, how do we use our existing technology infrastructure, for example, uh, something we're working on is creating a contact-free check-in, check-out uh, process to minimize the number of touch points. Um, and contact-free, I always say, doesn't have to mean empathy or compassion-free, right? We can make uh, uh, value-added um, interactions um, by protecting and uh, creating safe environments for uh, patients and staff. Um, I'll just add the um, app that we developed uh, for the inpatient setting was uh, unique in the sense that um, it really came to fruition during COVID-19 uh, when we had restricted uh, visitation policies. Uh, we actually um, were able to have patients that were already enrolled um, in our uh, patient portal we could create shared access so family members could actually keep tabs on what was happening um, with uh, family members who may be patients or, or hospitalized. And I know many of our care team members are wearing um, PPE. And so one of the things that was uh, available were actually pictures of care team members. So again, humanizing um, the, the care team uh, behind all of that PPE. 
Those are great ideas and examples. Thank you, Elpa. Um, Adam, I want to hear from you too. What do you think have some, been some of the um, most interesting and effective um, uh, patient experience uh, technologies and digital technologies that um, Cleveland Clinic has implemented over the past 12 months or so that really have made an impact? Thank you. Well, we've talked a bit about virtual care. Prior to COVID, we were I had already purposed to increase our virtual care to being about 50% or more of our ambulatory uh, business and how we provided care. Well, we've now surpassed that. We're at about 75% uh, by necessity. The question then becomes, what is that new normal of balance and what's appropriate and what isn't appropriate for virtual care? And how do you ensure that you're not missing something? And again, also so that you're ensure that you're not missing uh, swaths of the population that have limited access to that. Uh, one of the things that we had implemented as well, which was pretty neat, uh, was what we call a virtualist program. Uh, we had, through our own uh, homegrown, developed risk, risk um, stratification algorithms, had determined which of our frail elderly patients were at a greatest risk of decline. And for those patients, we uh, created a house calls program. And in that house calls, it was sort of the traditional sense of doctor and nurse practitioner alternating going out to the home to visit with patients. But as these are frail and elderly patients, they're prone to decline pretty quickly and sometimes without warning. And we found ourselves at a loss for how to urgently dispatch help to meet those needs. And we're dissatisfied with what we had, which was the approach of sending an ambulance out with a paramedic and oftentimes requiring a hospitalization. So we decided to take a different approach. We hired our own uh, paramedics and created a virtualist uh, model where we have uh, medicine physicians who just do digital care. And when these patients and other patients uh, experience a decline or a decompensation, we deploy the paramedics into the home who can do an on-site physical examination and evaluation of the patient, comprehensive medication reconciliation. They can draw labs. They can initiate breathing treatments and the such. But then, importantly, they use an iPad and the EMR to dial up one of our virtualist physicians. And then together, between the patient, the family, the virtualist, and the paramedic, we've been able to keep those patients at home where they wanted to be and where they'd like to be safely more than 80% of the time, rather than having them come into the hospital. So that's key. And then one other component that we've really expanded over the last year is home monitoring. We have about 150 different brands of home monitoring devices that we're able to integrate into the EMR automatically. And that, that those data get directly fed into the EMR. We've set up algorithms to analyze those data and highlight the actionable changes and then we have a, a crew of people that monitors this and then, ex and then escalates that um, up to the physicians and others who need to make the decisions about how to react to that. So that has also accelerated dramatically through our home monitoring program, secondary to COVID, where we wanted to take patients that we've identified as being COVID positive or COVID at risk and keep them at home unless absolutely necessary. Got it. Those sound like fantastic programs as well. Thank you for um, outlining that and running down through what Cleveland Clinic is doing. That's very impressive. Um, John, I wanted to go to you next. I understand one of your core responsibilities is driving value with the EHR data and advancing analytics. Could you talk a little bit about what some of the most important clinical performance and patient safety benchmarks are that you measure 
um, some of the lessons that you've learned or, or words of wisdom for other executives that are managing similar um, departments trying to drive value with their analytics? Thanks, Laura. Let me um, provide some context. Now, HCA Healthcare is a large health system. We have the privilege of almost 39 million patient encounters every year. And the privilege of scale isn't size, it's really the ability to accelerate learning. So we'd like to learn at speed. And uh, <clears throat> about 10 years ago at the advent of meaningful use, we made a decision that um, we wouldn't necessarily be um, ripping and replacing an old EHR, rather we wanted to create an environment where the learning health system was embedded in our information infrastructures, wherein the data that are inevitable byproduct of each and every encounter were captured in a data warehouse that could be fed back to provide improved care at the bedside, um, something like sepsis, which I'll come back to, uh, or improve operation of the system, whether it's um, safety, quality, patient experience, um, compassion, um, uh, resource utilization, et cetera. Uh, and um, this has really been uh, instantiated. And uh, you know, to us, the, the best markers, um, to, to your question, are really the outcomes the patient's seeking, a restoration of function, um, uh, survival of, um, of very difficult uh, disease states. Uh, one, one of the most difficult disease states is, of course, sepsis. And uh, that's really captured even more attention in the era of, of, of COVID. And uh, sepsis is really the um, uh, responsible for about 35% of, of deaths in American hospitals as a final common pathway. It's the uh, situation of overwhelming um, uh, infection, the body's overwhelming response. The problem is it's a, it's a syndrome. That is, it has features that um, sometimes present themselves in the electronic record, like a drop in blood pressure or a change in a lab. And the provider, the physician, the nurse, can't be at the bedside and at the computer simultaneously. So we created a system called SPOT, Sepsis Prediction and Optimization Therapy, to attempt to um, uh, really accelerate the recognition uh, of a disease for which death increases by up to 8% for every hour of delay. And uh, in point of fact, um, the system has been so successful that over the last um, five years, we've now saved 8,000 lives uh, with this program. Uh, and it's my pleasure to share that uh, just today it was announced that HCA Healthcare received the John M. Eisenberg uh, Award for Innovation, the National Innovation Award, uh, because this has really allowed us to capture that EHR signal, process it, and tee it up for providers to do what they love to do best, which is really provide the best care, the best outcomes um, uh, for the patient. So pretty excited um, uh, for sharing that. Um, uh, Congratulations on the award. Well, thank you. And I think the other piece is that we hear an awful lot about the, the challenge of using EHRs, some of their unfriendliness, the contributions to burnout. Uh, to me, one of the best um, affirmations of this type of decision support uh, is not just that it saves lives, obviously important, but to our clinicians. Uh, one particularly memorable comment is that this is what makes EHRs worthwhile, the ability to see things that we couldn't see. Absolutely. And, and that's a fantastic insight, knowing, you know, the physicians can sometimes not always appreciate the EHR and the technology when they're trying to care for patients. So that's a fantastic example. Um, Matt, I wanted to connect with you next. I have a question um, from your perspective at Mount Sinai. What has been some of the biggest challenges that you've had or um, been able to overcome when you're um, looking at the patient experience and bringing new um, initiatives into fruition? Oh, you're on mute. Thank you. Caught that. Um, 
So sure. So the number one thing is we're a nonprofit. You know, that's plain and simple. Um, we're we capital and funds are are limited, and especially now uh, after all the expenses that have been uh, imposed upon us uh, for COVID, um, even more so. But after that, it's really I think maintaining um, or keeping up with patient expectations. You know, in in any other industry, for years we've all been able to book a ticket on an airplane, select our seat, check in, and track our luggage all the way through from start to finish from our phone. Um, and so our patients are expecting this type of technology throughout their encounters with the entire health system before they even walk in the door. And so we need to keep up with that. Um, and I think it also requires a change in how we think about it. You know, every year we take our IT executive team uh, to meet with a company that's not in healthcare to learn about what they do and some of the things that they do and what we can take away as learnings for us. And about three years ago, we met with the CIO and other executives at JetBlue. And one of the things that we walked away from that meeting with was what's interesting is that JetBlue does not think of themselves as an airline. They do not think of themselves in the transportation industry. They think of themselves as a customer service organization that just happens to fly people around in planes. And so I think that perspective and, um, you know, Alpa can probably relate to this is putting yourself in the head of your, not just patients, but for us, it's also our students, our faculty, our researchers, visitors, family, anybody who touches the health system and see what can we do to make that experience, you know, bring it to their expectations in terms of what they would like to do and how they would like to interact with us. Uh, briefly, are there any changes that you made um, as a result of some of those meetings? Um, it was three years ago. I couldn't tell you <laughs> right offhand, but I think it really did. Um, I think the biggest change was how we think about things because we really, you know, we, we, we learned a lot that day. We were in their flight operations center, which was probably one of the coolest things I've ever done um, and seeing things live. But what every single person walked away with was that sort of different way to think about things. Got it. That's helpful. And Alba, I do want to um, throw the next question to you. I know you mentioned earlier about um, the app that Stanford has, the My Health, Health app. Mm -hmm. um, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the role that it has played in Stanford's response to COVID-19, as well as some of the capabilities that you have as a result of this app. Sure. I think, um, you know, uh, the organization's been on this journey and certainly uh, my uh, techn uh, technology and digital uh, solutions colleagues uh, deserve a lot of uh, credit uh, for the work that's been happening. But I think in partnership um, with patient experience, our operational and clinical teams and our technology teams, uh, we really came together uh, to understand um, and starting with uh, the experience or the um, feedback from patients and families. Um, so uh, we are very lucky at Stanford Healthcare. We are in the backyard of Stanford University and have access to um, great programs in schools like our uh, design school or the D school as we like to affectionately call it um, and really uh, leverage the methodology around design thinking and empathy uh, based uh, approaches uh, to, de to designing new products. Um, we started off with a really uh, great kind of base application that was used a lot in our ambulatory care 
environment. Um, so my health started out as an outpatient uh, app, and then we translated uh, that experience to the inpatient environment. And uh, in doing so, created uh, unique features and functions. And one of the things that we found was, um, and I think it may have been Matt talking about uh, the use of kind of native apps. If folks are used to interacting in a certain uh, way or with a certain application, how do you kind of continue to translate that experience? So uh, we extended the outpatient experience um, on our My Health app to the inpatient environment. And it's done contextually. So patients don't even need to uh, switch applications, log in or out. Out. Uh, once a patient's admitted, the um, application automatically knows uh, that you're now an inpatient and the view switches to an inpatient or hospital view as we call it. And it really includes information that is intended to engage uh, the patient in um, the progression of their care. Um, we often think about, you know, there's a lot of comparisons around the healthcare industry to hospitality. Uh, when we were designing the app, one of the things uh, or one of the principles we kind of kept in our minds is that uh, an inpatient stay is almost uh, like a compassionate boot camp. Nobody really wants to stay in the hospital, so how can we effectively engage patients to um, uh, monitor their progress and engage in um, their effort towards discharge? Um, so a lot of neat uh, features and functions that are tailored um, to each patient um, from the moment they come in, introducing them to their care teams, test results, medications um, are all made visible uh, to patients, as well as patient education that's available to them. And then finally, um, some uh, helpful hints as they're preparing for discharge. And one of the other things that we included um, was also the share access. So family members um, that might be 3,000 miles away or not being able to visit during the era of COVID-19, again, have access to key pieces of information um, to help them understand what's happening um, with their uh, loved one. So I think it's been it's been a great opportunity to leverage the fact that we had um, almost somewhere between 70 and 80 percent of uh, patients that are already enrolled um, in our uh, portal. So a captive audience to try to engage now um, in this different setting. That's fascinating. Thank you so much for walking us through that. Um, Adam, I want to jump to you now. Looking at some of the things that Cleveland Clinic has done, what are some of the big um, challenges that you've had and uh, you know, uh, implementing technology for that type of health system? Yeah, there's a couple of things that we've done from a challenge perspective um, and from, you know, how we're really trying to approach uh, our customers from a patient experience standpoint. I'll, I'll categorize the, the latter part into our real initiatives to try to better understand patients rather than assuming that we know who they are and what their needs are. Uh, it's important to understand from their perspectives. And so to that degree, we do a lot of focus groups. Um, then the, the second category is to create a cohesive experience across a large healthcare system. And then finally, to simplify the financial journey. And technology is really components along the way for all of those different things. We're implementing a, a new CRM tool uh, that will help provide a real good 360 degree view of what patients want and need that has been informed by their input and the focus groups. With that, we can create a differentiate, what we're calling a differentiated lifetime care approach to where, I mean, if you think about it in healthcare, many of the starts and stops in healthcare are really created by us. The patient is common along that journey 
and we have a series of handoffs that are really oftentimes quite arbitrary and not transparent as to the why or the what to our patients. And so how do we more seamlessly connect all of those uh, transition points is the focus of that differentiated lifetime care. And from a cohesive approach across the health system, we're in multiple states. We're not as big as HCA, clearly, from a from a, a spread standpoint, but we're in a lot of different states and a lot of different locations and we're growing. And so as you grow, it becomes more important to create one approach to the degree that you can. Obviously it has its local flavor and flair, but to have one cohesive approach that makes for a one Cleveland clinic. And that's part of our focus as well. And then simplifying the financial journey is important as well. You know, it's, uh, it's messy out there for patients to try to figure out what is this gonna cost me um, and we're building an app and implementing an app that will make that very seamless to where patients can understand for them, for their insurance, for the care that is approaching them, uh, what it's going to cost and how to best approach that. So those are some of our initiatives and our focal areas. From a difficulty standpoint, it's the same things that you would imagine are true everywhere. Scalability is difficult. Affordability is difficult. It takes a lot of planning on the front end to make those things work work well uh, and part of that planning needs to be sure to include the frontline workers the frontline people who actually are at that interface with the patients because otherwise we will create more problems than we solve that that's a great point thank you so much adam uh, john i wanted to connect with you next and ask i guess what do you see as some of your biggest challenges on um, your ongoing projects or the things you're expecting to launch over the next year or so well, there are really um, five areas, and I'll, I'll just address them briefly. First, the cost of new technology is always challenging, and um, I, I think it's fair to say that um, the health sector is, is wounded at the moment, um, uh, as is demonstrated in every newspaper, and so a cost is always a, a consideration. That cost is exacerbated by point two, which is interoperability. Uh, interoperability, or the lack thereof, means that one has a bunch of parallel systems or has to plumb them together. Uh, and um, uh, this is something we need as an industry to really uh, support acceleration on. And I, I don't just mean the, the health information, even in devices uh, that um, would serve the same purpose, for example, in a cardiovascular suite, need to be able to plug and play. Uh, the third is that um, I'm really building on um, Adam's great points. Um, you need to have mobility and comprehensiveness. That is, you don't want to be, if you will, apt to death. So things need to coordinate and um, the workforce is mobile, patients are mobile, and um, the technologies need to be mobilized. Uh, fourth, uh, really regulatory burden. Uh, this is a challenge. I'm so proud of the work that um, our teams did and our, our, our colleagues used in, in the treatment of SPOT. It saved 8,000 lives, yet the FDA this past year offered instruction that anything that leads to clinical decision-making would be regulated as a device. I can't imagine that that would have been built. I can't imagine that anyone would go to the effort of actually taking it through FDA device clearance. And I can't imagine the agility to update algorithms, um, decision support, machine learning uh, at a sequence that's compatible with that sort of regulatory overlay. Uh, and then finally, the state of technology itself. Uh, I, I think this is a period of acceleration, but we need to make the devices, the interfaces, um, uh, much more human compatible. I imagine um, the workplace of the future where the electronic record is created by ambient intelligence. So when I pick up a digital stethoscope, it leaves um, a trail of a photocardiogram, a standard amplitude referenced um, recording. So 
um, my three out of six murmur isn't uh, Dr. Meyer's five out of six murmur or vice versa. Uh, so all of these things I think will come together. And um, you know, right now I, I'm a perennial optimist. I think the challenges of virtualization that we're experiencing with COVID, which will go on, uh, will lead despite some of the pressures uh, on the cost side to an acceleration uh, and the creation of new opportunity. Fascinating. Thank you so much, John. And then Matt, I wanted to give you an opportunity to tag on here as well. I know Mount Sinai has a lot of exciting things going on. So where do you see some of the biggest challenges? I know you mentioned on the financial side um, in a previous response, but are there any other things that you're tackling or um, challenges that you're anticipating over the next several months? Sure. Well, one of them was that um, I think that there was an issue with physician buy-in on telehealth and video visits, and that seems to have magically disappeared. Uh, we have a lot of physicians who were hesitant to um, see their patients virtually, and now that they were either forced to or offered the opportunity as a way to maintain um, uh, their, their patients, et cetera, uh, the number of physicians that have embraced it uh, is really quite um, astounding. And so from the no turning back perspective, we'd like to see that continue. I think one of the other challenges, and this is probably something that everybody experiences, is the sheer number of ideas that come at us. Uh, everyone has an idea. Everyone has seen something at a conference or um, in, a, in a trade magazine. Uh, everyone knows someone who's got a startup who's working on this magical tool that's going to fix everything and wow every patient. And so it's a matter of filtering through those um, and identifying which have value, which are worth pursuing. And then also standardizing. You, you might have four great solutions for the same problem, but you want to maintain a consistent experience both for the patient and for the provider. So finding what's the, finding that sweet spot, and then it also ties into, you know, reducing complexity and cost of support of the solution um, is to zero in on it. So it's you know, kind of fighting through all that noise and the uh, the bright, shiny object disorder to arrive at what's best for everyone and what's going to be most cost effective. Absolutely. I think all of the panelists here can relate to that for sure. Um, we only have a couple minutes left here, but I do want to um, get one more question in. And so for all of the panelists, could you please give your 10 to 15 second response um, to this last question? Um, the question is, uh, Briefly, where do you see the best budget-conscious budget opportunities to innovate in patient experience and um, quality care in the future? I'll start with you, Alpha. Uh, sure. Um, I guess I like to use this term uh, upcycling, um, kind of like recycling. Um, there is a lot of investment in infrastructure. Um, I think that's been uh, developed and implemented pre-COVID and scaled um, as a result of COVID. So how can we actually think creatively about using some of these technologies such as um, telehealth or video visits um, in new interesting ways? And I'll just give a couple of examples. Uh, for example, in my area, um, how can we provide supportive care uh, through video visits? Or how do we create the next uh, generation of, and I'll put in quotes, discharge phone calls um, using uh, different technologies um, so we can assess more about the patient and help them along the way. Perfect. Adam, what are your thoughts? 
I don't know that it's particularly innovative, but I will just say that the basics still matter. The three things that patients really want and need to connect to their care appropriately is they want one, to feel heard and understood. Two, they want to understand their, condi their condition and participate in determining the options for themselves, be full on shared decision-making participants. And then the third component really that leads to a great experience for patients is that they are being cared for by a team that communicates with each other and is on the same page. It, you know, so I think we can find ways to really make that endemic across all that we do, regardless of technology. I think then we will do a good job of, of meeting patient experience needs. That's so helpful, Adam. Thank you. Uh, Matt, what are your thoughts? I think, uh, you know, you got to keep an eye on what's happening in the consumer marketplace and see what you can leverage um, established solutions. So one of the innovative things that we did in response to COVID was we used Google Nest cameras broadcasting to iPads and we had one camera on the patient and one camera on the vitals monitor um, and the iPads were outside the patient room so we could monitor the patient without actually going into the room for everyone's safety and that was just using commercial off-the-shelf products that um, our teams were able to put together and, and innovate quickly and effectively. Great. And last, doc, Dr. Perlin, could you wrap us up here? Sure. And I'll, I'll build on my colleagues' terrific comments. I, I loved Alpo's um, description of contact-free but not compassion-free. And as we try to stage the workflow in our organizations, imagine how you could better not have patients waiting at lab or waiting at MRI, but actually like a restaurant, give them the buzzer or the app. Well, that's an immediate um, sort of transition. It's low tech, uh, it's very familiar, uh, and it helps to um, uh, really improve their experience uh, for all involved uh, on both provider um, side and, and, and patient. Um, second, um, uh, building on you know, the use of technology, as Matt just described, that are available and off the shelf in the consumer environment. Now, patients are pretty familiar or increasingly familiar with things like FaceTime and Skype. And I know we worry about HIPAA and those sorts of things, but um, I had the privilege of co-chairing a group at the National Academy of Medicine. And I think we, the experts suggested we're overly paternalistic. We don't tell consumers or patients what type of telephone to use when they make telephone calls for advice. And if the patient wants to make that choice, um, no, I think we need to expand our repertoire of mechanisms for interaction uh, that, to Adam's point, um, uh, really allow the, the patients to be heard and the experience of the engagement to, to be meaningful uh, as possible, given uh, the particular interests of, uh, of the individual. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about how these things come together, as I said earlier, uh, despite um, uh, the challenges. Uh, this will compel us to, to really accelerate, uh, innovate, um, I think, in the process. Uh, make things better. Well, thank you all. This has been a fascinating discussion. I think there's a lot of takeaways here that'll be really, really useful for hospitals and health systems and leaders across the country. So I appreciate your time and um, look forward to connecting with you all again in the future. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.